Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, Monaco's Christy Evans explores her Englishness. I fiercely uphold the queuing system, and if you were to even accidentally cut in front, I would huff and puff, silently seething. But I won't say anything to you. Instead, I'll turn to the person behind me and raise my eyebrows to the sky. Plus, we speak with the CEO of Groupe Le Monde, Louis Dreyfus, on their new English-language digital edition. The US point of view on international news or the British point of view on international news are not the only one. It's very interesting to be able to compare or to add to what you are reading, usually with your local media, another point of view. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Paris, where we've recorded live a special edition of The Globalist on Monday, with all the results and analysis of the French presidential elections. One of our guests was Gilles Paris, Le Monde columnist and former Washington correspondent. Here is Gilles with more. There was no uh, real joy yesterday evening because uh, there were more relief for the people who voted for Emmanuel Macron and a lot of frustration still for the people who backed Marine Le Pen. Uh, we saw some, some, some uh, uh, strong reaction in uh, her strongholds in, uh, in Embaumont in the north of France. People were cursing the, the uh, Emmanuel Macron. So uh, no, no real choice and, 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 uh, and still a lot of resentment uh, from the people who feel who are left behind and who feel that uh, uh, the system is twisted against uh, their interests. It does seem like this is a very strange victory. It doesn't yeah. feel like a big victory. One thing I do want to ask you is that you were on the editorial floor of Le Monde last night, practically speaking. What does an Emmanuel Macron victory? What did an Emmanuel Macron victory mean for you at that point, other than an enormous workload had Le Pen got in? That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> we have some. We will have some time to to, to recover from the last weeks of of, of campaign. Um, yesterday was strange because uh, the, the the speech he, he pronounced after uh, uh, the election was uh, uh, sober, much sober than. Uh, the one who are supposed to do when you are a clear victor, and he was uh, elected with a strong margin, uh, but a, a sober speech and a shorter speech. And uh, we know that uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron is used to speak for hours when he <laughs> had the opportunity. So I feel that uh, we we felt that he know that uh, uh, it's not that clear that he won uh, by uh, with with uh, 58 percent of the vote which is big and he recognized that in his in his victory speech i think there's a, there's a line i think we mentioned it at the beginning of the program uh, where he said i'm no longer the candidate for one camp i now want to be a president for all french women and men um, how much do we believe that uh, they all say that when they are elected. So I think I'd heard that before. So. It, it's not brand new, but it's this time it's really real because, uh, uh, to some extent, it's a kind of Potemkin victory in the sense that he 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 has no clear mandate. 
he was backed at the very last minute by people who uh, don't like him, but they hate more Marine Le Pen. So that was the main, the driving force of uh, many votes, uh, meaning that uh, uh, his platform is is not uh, shared by by everybody. It is not shared by the majority of people who voted for him, actually. And there was a huge abstention rate. Here yeah. in France, I think it's 28 percent. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the chat last night was that 18 million people had voted for Emmanuel Macron. 18 million had either spoiled their ballot, not turned up, or, or, or did a, a vote blanc, which we heard from from that lady we heard from down at the, at the Emmanuel Macron rally. There were several people who said, I'm here to cheer the victory of Emmanuel Macron, but I didn't vote for him. It was an absolute paradox. It really was. It's the second highest uh, uh, level of abstention in the Fifth Republic. So it's very high, especially because we, have, uh, we had a far-right candidate. Uh, we would have expected a higher turnout. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, the, the, the uh, third uh, political trend, uh, which was absent uh, on the runoff, uh, the one built around Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, the head of La France Insoumise, uh, which is a, a left-wing party, but uh, uh, more left than the, any uh, social democrat uh, movement. So this, this movement decided not to choose between Emmanuel Macron and, and Marine Le Pen. And that's, it's not new because they did already that in, in, uh, five years ago. But because uh, Marine Le Pen appeared to be closer to victory uh, than five years ago, it was still a big deal for many people. So we now have 13 million people who decided that they wanted to take France in the direction of the far right. In Marine Le Pen's um, figures, it was 41%, wasn't it? So it was lower than the opinion polls had predicted. Nonetheless, that suggests that there is an enormous division in France, which Macron conceded in his, in his victory speech. But what does that division actually look like? What is interesting is if you look at the map, uh, it's clear that you are the, 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 the well off and the left behind because uh, it's not, uh, of course, uh, the main cities are voting for Emmanuel Macron uh, with big margin, it's clear. Uh, the, the rural areas uh, are for uh, Marine Le Pen, but it's not a, a pattern because if you look at Brittany, uh, you've got uh, rural uh, localities uh, who backed Emmanuel Macron. And also you've got small cities uh, in many places in the country who decided to vote for Marine Le Pen. So it's really, there is of course a generational gap between the uh, the older voters who decided to vote for Emmanuel Macron and the younger who are more uh, seduced by uh, Marine Le Pen's speech. What I would like to say also is that uh, Marine Le Pen has no mandate neither because uh, she was uh, the name of a protest vote and people voted for her because they were voting against Emmanuel Macron, but they were not voting for what she would like to do with France, with the European Union, with NATO. 
And we're going to stay with Le Monde here. I had the pleasure to speak with the Media Group's CEO, Louis Dreyfus, on their new English-language digital edition. Two weeks ago, we launched Le Monde in English. We will uh, distribute around 70% of our content translated in English through professional translators. We hired 10 journalists, either in Paris or in LA, to edit the content, to give a context to the content, and to make sure that the translation is uh, relevant. And we launched it, and uh, so far we are quite uh, happy with, um, with the results, meaning uh, we have a growth of the audience, and we even had a new subscription. And that's, that's great for us. For Le Monde, uh, who consider itself as a, what we call the journal de référence, the reference newspaper, I think we, we are eager to share with a larger audience the way we cover French news, European news, and international news. I think for, even for somebody in, in London or in, or in New York to have another view of what's going on in the Middle East, on, in Asia, on Africa, could be an interest. So we are not a competitor of the local media, but we could, be, uh, we could offer another point of view. And I think it's relevant right now. It's interesting to show the French view of the world as well, because sometimes, especially when it comes to the English language, you're, you know, you're dominated by either British publications and broadcasters or American ones. So that's a good kind of, even a way for France to show its soft power with, with a brand that is so respected, right? Right, and, and, and probably to share with our readers, or international readers, that the US point of view on international news or the British point of view on international news are not the only one. And we can have a singular point of view. We are publishing serious news. We have more than 500 uh, journalists on staff. So we have the resources to be on the field. But I think it's very interesting to be able to compare or to add to what you are reading usually on your, with your local media, another point of view. So uh, Luis, how will it work? I mean, can you do a subscription specifically for Le Monde in English, and I believe there will be also a newsletter as part of the whole kind of uh, launch campaign, right? Yeah, you will be able to subscribe only to Le Monde in English with a launch tariff around €2.50 a month. So uh, much less than what you uh, would uh, find on the market for quality newspapers. And a daily newsletter will uh, promote the best stories on Le Monde in English. I think I, I must add something. Uh, we will cover uh, serious news. We'll cover war, economic news, politics, but also the French way of life, style, food, fashion, uh, design. And I think it could be uh, also interesting for many, many readers to get this opportunity to read those contents produced by French uh, journalists about French uh, way of life. And that's another aspect of what we invest in at Le Monde with um, M Le Magazine du Monde, which is uh, one of our best products. We will translate it, its content and you will see it in Le Monde in English. And of course, for my own interest, I, I must ask as well, is there perhaps a plan to do something print in English as well? No. <laughs> uh, that's okay. No, that's okay. It's, it's, uh, unfortunately, it's too too costly, and the market would be too difficult to find for us. So we will invest more and more in foreign languages, more and more international distribution, but I think it will be through digital. Sorry for that. 
No, that's that's okay. And and I was going to ask Louise. I was looking at the numbers. It's impressive the rise in kind of. Uh, you know, readers of, of Le Monde in terms of subscriptions. You know, I remember even during the lockdowns, people were kind of so depressed about media, but I think Le Monde had impressive numbers. If you could share some of them with us. Yeah, Le, Le Monde, uh, I, I took my position at the helm of Le Monde 11 years ago. 11 years ago, our daily circulation topped at 250,000 a day. And we had around 310 journalists on staff at Le Monde. 11 years later, we have a daily circulation that is almost 500,000 daily, so double what it was 11 years ago. And we are now more than 500 journalists on staff. And we are profitable. We have been profitable for the past six years. So the good thing for the media for us, and if, if we can be an example for others, that if you invest in digital and in digital staff, you may find a business model and it is a virtual circle. And the more you invest in the staff, the better is the content. The more you subscribers you love, the more money you can have to reinvest in the your staff, and um, and the best you are. And so that's as an example to follow. It's not uh, possible for every media, but for quality newspaper, I think there is a, a way to invest and to find a business model. And that's that's a very very good news for us. If you remember what was the views on uh, uh, quality papers or newspapers 10 years ago, we were supposed to be dead now. And actually not, we are not. So that's, that's good news. You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And on this week's Foreign Desk, the show discusses the complex issue of English identity. Monaco's Christy Evans wrote this great monologue on what does she feel about her own Englishness. I am a tea drinker, but not if it's too weak or if you've strained the bag. And don't even think about putting the milk in first. I fiercely uphold the queuing system, and if you were to even accidentally cut in front, I would huff and puff until I am red in the face, silently seething. But I won't say anything to you. Instead, I'll turn to the person behind me and raise my eyebrows to the sky before eagerly awaiting for karma or a nearby attendant to guide you to the back of the 50-foot line. I have such little self-respect that I joke about all my little insecurities, but I like you so much that I will poke fun at your weird jumper. I was born in a suburban town in the south of England on April 23rd, St George's Day and William Shakespeare's birthday, and I am uncomfortable with being English. It wasn't always this way. As a child, my birthday weekends were often spent at town events celebrating St. George's Day, the patron saint of England. I remember helping to draw a chalk dragon on a brick wall in Salisbury and having the St. George's cross painted on my cheeks. I can still recall the feeling of jubilation at such events during the first warm spring days of the year and wishing it was a public holiday so I didn't have to go to school on my birthday. One of the first Facebook pages I joined as a teenager was a campaign to make that dream a reality. 
The only time we'd ever watched sports in my household was to support England during the World Cup. And I long again for the sense of camaraderie I got from seeing England flags fluttering from passing car windows each season. But as I have grown, my love of my country has diminished. At school, I learned about our lineage of monarchs, but didn't understand the class divide until I watched the film, Billy Elliot. We were taught about the American slave trade, but it wasn't until I saw Shane Meadows' This Is England that I woke up to the white supremacy which has always been here and draped in the white and red flag since the late 60s. Milk, honest to God, I'm really glad you came here today because I've got one question to ask you. Next, do you consider yourself English or Jamaican? English. That's what we need, man. That's what this nation has been built on, proud men. 2,000 years, this little tiny fucking island has been raped and pillaged by people who have come here and wanted a piece of it. The Windrush scandal made me think of my maternal grandmother's journey to London from Imperial India and the racism her brown-skinned, English-born children faced on their way to school each day. That St George's Day Facebook page I joined started releasing posts of an inflammatory nature, sneakily disguised as patriotism, and eventually renamed itself to Tommy Robinson the pseudonym for the far-right, anti-Islamist activist and convicted fraud and stalker, Stephen Yaxley Lennon. If a pub is flying my flag outside of sporting events, I avoid it because the balding, beer-bellied regulars would fall silent and watch my every move until I leave, despite being white myself. And last year, as my Italian colleagues stayed locked in their flats during the European football final through fear of being attacked on the streets, and my foreign colleagues discussed the abhorrent behaviour of my countrymen. I stayed quiet, hoping they would forget what I was. When they finally looked to me for answers, all I could do was offer a spluttering apology and do my best to avoid the topic until it had died down again, retweeting every left-leaning post condemning the situation so everyone had no doubt as to my real feelings on the matter. I could say something about how most of those who defend the flag, voted for Brexit and fear refugees are the ones who have been most let down by the institutions they look up to. But at least they have a sense of pride and belonging that I have only been able to enjoy through my Welsh, Scottish and Irish friends when celebrating their national holidays. Perhaps it is me who has been quick to label my flag like a frustrated teacher to a problem child. But every now and then, I find myself sitting at lunch, passionately explaining the versatility of the baked bean, the meaning of pancake day, or the proper Christmas cracker etiquette to my friends who are experiencing these joys for the first time. And when our northern business editor asked me the other day how long I'd been in London since moving from Australia, I looked at him, frowned, and said, Mate, I'm English. And from Monocon culture, we looked at the Venice Biennale.
and who best to discuss their thoughts about it than Monaco's Chiara Rimela and Alexis Self. They're both reporting from Venice for us. I think actually everybody is quite surprised at just the level of enthusiasm and, I don't know, almost frenzy that's, that this week has brought to the city. It wasn't just that people wanted to come back. They were desperate just to fill these spaces again and go to the parties and do all the things. There is like a really quasi-hysterical energy. And there was, at least at the beginning of the week, Wednesday was packed the queues for every single pavilion it was also a really sunny day so you could just see people lounging on the grass at the giardini it was this kind of half decadent like day of art here in the giardini and then yesterday at the arsenale um it's just but a stream of people is constant and i mean we, i guess we could tell even before coming because um just looking at how booked up the city is you can't get a room you can't get a table at the best restaurants which has been i'm sure cause of uh, of no disappointment for us and for many others but it, it really does feel like venice is full to the brim and in certain respects venetians are finding it a little bit difficult to deal with it because for about two years they've had the city virtually to themselves and they were quite enjoying it. So very good for business, good for hoteliers and restaurateurs, less so perhaps for the city itself. It might might seem like you're on an even smaller island. But Lex, tell us about, I mean, art isn't an island, so there's obviously, you know, the political, the pavilions in the Giardini are sometimes political statements, sometimes just about good old art and sometimes those two things together. We mentioned the Ukraine pavilion in the introduction to this show. What about that and the kind of the tremendous silence of the Russian pavilion? What, what, What are some of the themes of this year's Biennale? As Kiara was saying, the first morning, well, Wednesday morning wasn't the first morning, but the first morning when everyone descended en masse was a really great vibe, actually. The sun was shining, you know, the water was turquoise and everything was sort of sparkling and the Vaporetti were disgorging thousands of passengers out. And the first thing lots of people would have seen was the shuttered Russian pavilion. The Ukrainians were given a space in the main Giardini. They, they also have a pavilion in the Arsenale, um, but they have a temporary pavilion here. They've, they've actually given over the main square outside the US pavilion and called it Piazza Ukraina. It's a very haunting exhibit. It's, um, it's, it's a kind of ring-fenced square, ring-fenced by charred bits of wood on which are uh, loads of billet posters, each one designed by a different Ukrainian artist. And then in the middle, there's a pile of sandbags about... I would say 20 feet tall. And it's a very haunting site. It can feel a bit incongruous when there's loads of people because it's right next to the big cafe. So there's often lots of people sitting around eating and kind of drinking and joking. And it's difficult to know how to deal with what's going on. And I think at times the art world can have a kind of inflated sense of its own importance and, and its need to comment on world events. But I think that actually what they've done has been as sensitive as it could be. Don't don't you agree, Kiara? Yeah, I think so. I think that the content of the pavilions themselves and the way that the that the Ukrainian situation has been handled by the pavilions themselves is really um, is really well done. The Ukrainian pavilion itself is uh, constitutes of a, a single work, a Pavlo Makov, and it's called the Fountain of Exhaustion. It's, it's a series of I guess funnels that funnel down water uh, until there's basically none left at the bottom. So it, it's haunting and it's, I guess, very explicit metaphor. 
but I would agree with you that in certain respects, it feels like because the situation with Ukraine has been addressed in these spaces, it's kind of done and archived and people can move on and just uh, pretend that the rest of the Biennale is going on as usual and they can just feel like that that issue has been dealt with and then they can enjoy and luxuriate in the sun. To a certain extent that's what people come here for and so it's understandable but there is a tension there between these two aspects I think of this year. You know there are many less yachts uh, on the Riva degli Schiavoni that's pretty eloquent as well. Usually the whole Riva is completely filled with yachts there's only two very big ones this year um so you can tell that a certain kind of money is missing this year a certain type of money yeah conspicuous by its absence i'm going to attempt um after talking about ukraine the artistic juxtaposition of people partying and, and having uh, lobster thermidor for lunch next to the ukrainian pavilion i'm now going to attempt a horrendous gear change in my speedboat splashing everyone in the giardini what has been your favorite pavilions and your favorite parties chiara first Pavilion-wise, I think I've really enjoyed the US. Uh, it's Simon Lee and it is just very beautifully done because the whole exterior of the pavilion has also been changed and it's got a thatched roof now and this huge monumental sculpture. And then she's got her own kind of black and white sculptures inside. It's all about the female black body. Very stark, not that many pieces, very, very powerful. And then I've really enjoyed Belgium. It's got a, a bunch of video channel installations. All of them... Um, kids games in different parts of the world, some recent, some, I guess, more established, but you just see, for example, kids in Brazil playing a game called Contagion. It's a very recent game. And it consists, it's basically what we in Italian we call celai. So when you touch someone and they are it, but it's called Contagion now. And it's a new game that's kind of born out of Brazil. But the whole pavilion feels like it's just this cacophony of kind of kids screaming and laughing. When you go in, there are so many different videos going on at the same time. It's kind of joyous, but it's also giving you an insight into, I guess, how these games are defiant some in certain locations because they are places of war. So it's kind of happiness in a place of war. So I think that's really, really beautiful. What about you, Lex? What did you like? The thing is, is that, you know, there's a buzz created at, at, at the beginning of the Biennale and, and one pavilion, I think, that has had the most amount of attention and the biggest cues is the French pavilion. The queue's been so big, I actually haven't managed to get in there. <laughs> I'm going to go in there now. You've been in there, Kiara, and yes, you've spoken to the artist. Yes, it's, it's a beautifully done thing. It's a pavilion that recreates a series of film sets uh, with performers occasionally coming in and occupying these sets. And they are about Algerian films that were banned or not shown for very many years. So it's kind of resurfacing these films practically and physically it's beautifully done mm. i have to say also this year i'm very proud of the italian pavilion it doesn't happen very frequently and we shouldn't really be talking about nationalisms but we have to because <laughs> there are just national pavilions everywhere and um it's nice when your own nation does something really good and you can't help but feel a little proud ubs has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. 
And for a fun item here, we have the annual congressional soccer match between Republicans and Democrats. It is a tradition in the world of U.S. politics. We spoke with Ginny Ehrlich from the U.S. Soccer Foundation. We're so excited to bring the congressional soccer match back after a few year hiatus. I think everyone uh, here and uh, beyond are really excited about this opportunity to really bring people together for some fun and competitive soccer or football outside the US. Uh, we have three events. One is an embassy tournament uh, that includes 20 embassies facing off in some fun competition. The second is our actual congressional match. Um, and we have uh, members of Congress, Democrats versus Republicans, as you mentioned, as well as 17 former pro soccer players who will be playing a fun match this evening. And uh, that will be followed up by a staffer tournament and staffers from across the hill, Republicans and Democrats, more than 80 have signed up to face off and play at Audi Field. So when it comes to those former professionals, I have to ask, how do they get picked for which side they, they play on here? That has to be pretty competitive in itself. It is random selection. So uh, the uh, side that they're playing on does not necessarily correspond to their personal views. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And in general, if, if we were betting people here, who has the historical edge or who would you be expecting to win this time if you had to make a prediction? Well, I uh, I can tell you that the Republicans won in 2019. So we will see what happens this evening. It, it has been a few years. So I guess the question is who's been working out more uh, during the pandemic as well. Um, but I do want to ask sort of beyond that, we, we do hear so much about polarization in the United States, um, really even frankly, uh, something of a breakdown in social interactions between lawmakers. What is your feeling on that? Can events like this sort of build bridges between the lawmakers? We certainly hope so. You know, I think that sport has always been a unifier, especially soccer. It's after all the world's game. And so this provides members of Congress to interact with their colleagues across the aisle in a fun way that promotes healthy competition. And we hope that their interactions before, during, and after the match will translate into more bipartisanship in their daily work and stronger relationships. We also are excited about the embassy teams playing, you know, in a fun environment where they have opportunities to build social interactions uh, along with business interactions. I do have to ask on another uh, serious note, though. I was, of course, before we, we did this story, uh, reminded of 2017. There was this sort of awful shooting at a practice uh, ahead of a congressional baseball game where Steve Scalise, I remember, being shot a Republican congressman. And this was, it, it wasn't related to the game. It was an outside shooter. But I just, I wonder how that has impacted these sports events between lawmakers, including the, the Soccer Foundation one. We are certainly working very closely with the Capitol Police uh, to ensure the security at Audi Field that exists for all of their events to ensure that this be a safe and inviting and um, family-friendly event. Though it's something that we take seriously and we have many partners across the District of Columbia who are um, working with us to, to make that so. Now, Ginny, you are also the chief revenue officer uh, for the U.S. Soccer Foundation. This this game is for charity. Where Tell us where the money will go. 
Absolutely. At the U.S. Soccer Foundation, uh, we uh, work to ensure that kids from underserved communities across the United States have access to safe places to play and sports-based youth development. And so uh, the funds that are raised as a result of this event will support us to grow the number of mini pitches that we build in underserved neighborhoods across the country. Thus far, we've built 500 and we have a goal of reaching um, building a thousand across the country by 2026, as well as supporting our proven sports-based youth development program, where we use soccer as a vehicle for teaching kids in underserved communities critical health and life skills. Uh, we have a goal to reach a million kids by 2026, and we're at 400,000 thus far. So these funds will help us expand our programming so that kids who might not otherwise have the opportunity, have the opportunity to experience the power of soccer. And Jenny, just finally, you did say that soccer or football is the the world's game, uh, if you will. How is soccer doing, particularly among uh, those sort of underserved communities and youth in America at this point compared to so many other sports that are played in the U.S.? That's such an amazing question. You know, what we know is that kids from underserved communities um, are significantly less likely to have opportunities to play. Here in the United States, our system relies pretty heavily on a pay-to-play system for sports. And so what we strive to do is to make it so that kids can walk to pitches and play at no cost whenever they want in their own neighborhoods uh, to eliminate those costs, uh, as well as to provide programming that kids um, who might have more means have access to so that they can experience the power of being a part of a team, the power of interacting and experiencing healthy competition, because we know that those life skills carry so much value as um, kids develop into adults. And for tall stories, Gitanjali Krishna looks at the red fort in Delhi and the claim to its ownership by a woman purporting to be the oldest surviving descendant of India's last Mughal emperor. Few historical landmarks define India's capital the way the red fort does. Every year, the nation's Prime Minister makes his Independence Day speech from its iconic ramparts. Thousands gather beneath the fort's massive walls of red sandstone to listen, a tradition since 1947, when the newly minted nation's first Premier Jawaharlal Nehru unfurled the national flag against a beautiful monsoon sky. Today, the red fort complex is on every tourist itinerary, a UNESCO World Heritage Monument that positively pulsates with life. Outside, there's Old Delhi's chaotic traffic, flocks of pigeons and hawkers selling everything from spices to bangles to dubious antiques to souvenirs. Inside its grand old battlements, a monument and garden complex spanning over 121 acres lives and breathes. Walk along its numerous crenellations, where its founder, the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan, once commanded his armies, and it becomes easy to see why the Red Fort has been a seat of power from the time that it was built in 1639. Later, in British India, it became a symbol of Indian independence. Shah Jahan's descendant, the 82-year-old Bahadur Shah Zafar, 
more a poet than an emperor, became the reluctant leader of the first Pan-Indian rebellion against colonial rule in 1857. The rebellion, now known as India's first war of independence, was defeated. Zafar was exiled to Rangoon, now Yangon in Myanmar. Red Fort fell to the British and after independence to the Indian government. And now, one and a half centuries later, Zafar's heirs want it all back. Meet Sultana Begum, who lives in a cramped house in a crowded slum on the outskirts of Kolkata. She survives on a 60-pound pension that she began receiving after her husband, said to be Zafar's great-grandson, died in 1980. Sultana says the Indian government gave a pension to her husband, Mirza Muhammad Bedar Bakht, acknowledging the fact that he was the descendant and heir of Zafar. Among the meager possessions that this unlikely royal has today is proof of her marriage to him. For years, Sultana supported herself by running a tea shop. Sadly, some time ago, it was demolished to make way for a new road. Finally, in December 2021, to the bemusement of Delhiites, she lodged a case in the High Courts taking her claim as the rightful owner of Red Fort. The court rejected her petition as a gross waste of time, questioning why the claim was made over 150 years after Zafar was exiled to Rangoon. But Sultana is ailing and destitute, and now she plans to challenge the court's decision. If not the Red Fort itself, she says, the government at least owes her a fraction of the tourism revenues that the fort and indeed other Mughal monuments like the Taj Mahal generate today. So far, her case has been met mostly with ridicule. But is it fair, Sultana asks, for the descendant of the Mughals who built the Red Fort and Taj Mahal to languish in such abject poverty? Back at the fort, hawkers continue to hawk. Guides continue to swarm unwary tourists out to see Delhi's grandest Mughal monument. They might be ignorant of the fate of the historical fort that enables them their daily living. But at a time when the repatriation of antiquities is being increasingly seen as the way to right old wrongs, Sultana's claim has made many others wonder. Who does the Red Fort actually belong to? You are listening to The Curator. And now, almost 30% of the French electorate declined to vote last weekend, while a projected 90% of voters would turn out for Australia's federal elections later this year. The difference is compulsory voting. Is it worth it? Last weekend in France, in what might be reasonably characterized as a consequential election, i.e. do we put a far-right demagogue with a background in quasi-fascism and a record of Putin sympathizing in charge of the only country which is still a member of NATO, the EU and the Permanent Five on the UN Security Council, or not, nearly 30% of the French electorate decided that they couldn't be bothered voting. Next month in Australia, in what will be a general election with significantly less earth-shaking implications, i.e. do we stick with the bloke we have or do we give that other bloke a lash at it, turnout will be comfortably north of 90%, as it always is in Australian elections. 
The difference is not in any relative levels of avid political engagement. Indeed, if one measures these things in cafe tables thrown at police officers, the French are, as a bunch, significantly more politically engaged than Australians. The difference is that in Australia, voting is compulsory. Australia is not, well, not quite alone in this. Voting is compulsory and enforced in Argentina, Belgium, Bolivia, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein and a few other jurisdictions. The most recent joiners of the club are Bulgaria and Samoa, although this does not reflect a gathering trend. This century, indeed, Cyprus, Chile, Fiji, Paraguay and the Dominican Republic have repealed compulsory voting statutes. But this Australian believes, as do a clear majority of his fellow citizens if polls are any guide, that compulsory voting is a good thing. Indeed, that compulsory voting should be compulsory. Australia introduced the compulsory vote in 1924, spooked by widespread disinterest in the general election of 1922, in which just under 60% of the electorate showed up. Australia had only been a united country for 21 years, had been epically traumatised by a world war, and was still seeking to establish itself as a parliamentary democracy. The measure had instant results. At the next general election in 1925, turnout cleared 90% and has stayed thereabouts since. If you don't vote and are unable to persuade pertinent authorities of a good reason for not doing, it's a $20 fine. This commentator favours adding to the penalty a hearty slap upside the head with a big fish as a further corrective to complacency, but believes the current nuisance punishment to be about reasonable. The basic arguments for the compulsory vote boil down to the following. It spikes any dispute of a government's legitimacy, and it compels even the most militant apathete to take a vague interest in the governance of their country. But it also ends up having a usefully calming effect on a nation's politics. One of the reasons that Australia's politics have generally been so agreeably stolid is that one cannot win office merely by doing what demagogues do and winding up an angry, determined minority base. To cite one obvious example, Donald Trump was elected to the presidency of the United States in 2016 by 46.1% of a 55.7% turnout, barely a quarter of eligible voters. The same year, the UK was removed from the European Union by 52% of 72%, or by a little over a third of the electorate. The compulsory vote forces candidates, parties and interest groups to reach out to those who are not especially ideologically fervent, which is most people. And it keeps government honest at its most local. Australians are also compelled to vote for councils. British people are not, and by and large, do not. There are local elections across the UK next week. If the last such in 2019 are any guide, barely a third of registered voters will cast a ballot. Democracy, to borrow from Bob Woodward, dies in darkness. 
There are arguments against, and back in 1924 they were summed up by Melbourne newspaper The Age, which denounced the compulsory vote as tyranny, rooted in an assumption that electors are a mob of sheep liable to be shepherded, rounded up, driven and punished at the decree of some bureaucratic mandarin whose word and authority are paramount. But this, and other arguments against, are all absolute hooey. Hey, it's my explainer. It may well be the case that compulsory votes are cast by the ignorant, ill-informed and or insane. Well, so are voluntary ones. A compulsory vote could and should be accompanied by equally compulsory education in civics. Even the line that there is a democratic right not to vote doesn't hold up. In Australia, determined none of the abovers can scrawl across their ballot paper whatever obscenities please them, and thereby have their abstention counted. These are charmingly recorded as informal votes, and in 2019 were 3.8% of those cast. And it's not as if it is an especially onerous imposition, bestirring yourself every few years to walk up the street and make a mark on a piece of paper. It's about the least you can be asked for the fabulous boon that is citizenship of a free democracy. Making it compulsory gently reminds that this spectacular good fortune confers duties as well as privileges. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. From Monocon Design Extra, we visit southeastern Hungary, where the traditional craft of cattail weaving is making a comeback. Hungary was once the land of cattail, and the township of Tape, the center of cattail weaving. There was a time when more than half the townspeople were employed in the weaving industry, but the economic chaos of the 1990s forced many of them out of the profession. Many, but not all. So how long would it take? Hmm. MC is an all-women collective of cattail weavers, headquartered at the Tape Cultural Center. The future of the craft is now literally in their hands. Teresa, one of the collective's oldest members, describes the production process. Uh, this is the preparation. It takes a lot of time. This could be done by two people, so that's fine. And what they are doing is that the cattail has different uh, layers, and now they are cutting it up. It's a sham. It's called like, like silk. Yeah, and you do it as long as yeah. you can. Over and over and over. This will be uh, put into water to become wet mm -hmm. and woven together. So when we were looking for a community in Hungary, we wanted to do something which is like corn husk or straw or even cattail. And we did the research. We talked to a lot of people and that's how one day we just found this community. Gabor Nads is a social enterprise consultant. And together with a Vienna-based NGO, Corizom, He's trying to help AMC reach a wider audience. And we came here, got an introduction, and it seemed that they are they were open to be creative, and I think that was that was the main idea. And thanks to Corizon, it's happening already. My name is Wendy Andreu. So first I looked at everything they could do uh, with this uh, craft, 
So they could make uh, fashion accessories such as bags, or I also saw that they could make shoes, religious objects as well. Uh, they could make uh, 3D objects, flat objects. Wendy Andrew is a French designer specializing in fashion and furniture. And her latest project is a collaboration with AMC. Flowers as well, I saw, but lots of small objects. And I wanted uh, to challenge them a little bit and to go bigger by making a furniture collection. So from everything I saw, the most specific uh, was this really flat woven cat tail. Mm -hmm. And it's actually very specific to their community. This was a kind of weave that I've never seen before. So I thought I would focus on this, like this really basic kind of plain weave, uh, which they're really proud of. It's very them, you know, it's mm. part of their identity. And I thought of, yeah, how can you make um, 3D objects, 3D furniture out of a flat catail? Uh, do you feel that they're open to those ideas, to those challenges? So far, I think they are. I think they are happy because it's also, yeah, their identity, their craft that they want to promote, that they are really proud of, uh, that they want to also share. Maybe it's going to have maybe more bigger impact that maybe, I don't know where it's going to be sold but or exhibited, but it's going to be going out of tape to be seen by lots of people. So maybe this makes them proud. The women of AMC have every right to be proud of their work. It involves skill, devotion and a deep respect for tradition. And as long as there is interest in their craft, the tradition will live on. For Monocle and Tape, I'm Alexei Korolov. And finally on the show on Monocle Reads, this week Georgina Godwin speaks to Professor of Behavioural Science Nick Chater about his new book, The Language Game, which argues the language is taught not with fixed meanings and rules, but through the chaotic improvisation and creativity of everyday speech. You start your preface saying language is essential to what it means to be human, yet we rarely give it a second thought. We discover just how central it is to every aspect of our lives only when it fails us. I mean, that's so true, isn't it? It is possibly the most essential thing beyond sort of breathing and our hearts beating. I think that's right. And I think it is the most essential thing that is distinctively human. No other creature has language. There are various animal communication systems, but they're very fixed, very standardised. The fact that each of us speaks, to some extent, our own version of our own language, and that the, the range of languages is enormous. 7,000 uh, human languages of enormous variety, from whistling languages to sign languages to uh, more familiar languages that themselves are incredibly variable. The ability to create, to concoct, to cook up ways of communicating is something that humans are astonishingly apt at, and it allows us to transform what we can do. Crucially, I think, it allows us to, to work together in in creative, new, productive ways. And I think if we imagine life without language, well, to some extent, we can imagine that by just, you know, just the, the thought experiment that language disappears and we have to sort of blunder about without it. That would be, you know, the, almost every, every step of our lives would be inordinately difficult. Society would collapse pretty quickly. But we can also look, of course, at, uh, at, at our nearest primate cousins. We can look at chimpanzees and gorillas, for example. And they are quite similar to us. Uh, their brains are somewhat smaller, but they're, they're similar to us in many ways. 
They don't have language. That's, that, a lot can be achieved without language, but their societies are really very different from ours. Now, you talk about language being cooked up, so let's talk about Captain Cook in 1769, where essentially he had to invent language to talk to people who had never, never spoken English. Yeah, so what's remarkable is that some, and this is quite, this is, we pick up a particular case, but this was quite a common phenomenon. So on Cook's voyage, he arrives at Sierra del Fuego and in his journal notes that he's, his ship is going to go to land to talk or speak with the local people, with the aim, of course, of, of exchanging goods so they can um, get new provisions. So they, they meet a group of people who are almost certainly from a, a, a group called the Hausch, who are now sadly, sadly completely, uh, have been completely annihilated. And the Hausch have a language which is inordinately different from, from English or any other European language. So Cook's crew actually spoke a lot of different European languages, but, but none of those languages have any connection at all to the language that the Hausch would, would have spoken. And so they've got two groups of people who have to somehow communicate with no common language at all. And one of the things that's so remarkable is that very quickly communication begins. So one point of great importance, of literally existential importance for both sides, is to establish that they're not, they're not hostile. So two of the, the house people who are on the beach move forward um, away from the others, and two of Cook's men do the same in a mutual recognition of we're not, we're not trying to attack we're coming, coming singly, or in this case in pairs, making ourselves vulnerable, the house carries small sticks, which they, in a rather theatrical way, it seems, throw aside. Now that is a mine, that is a, that is a charade, which is telling Cook's party they potentially have weapons, but they're not going to use their weapons, they're throwing them aside. Now we understand that perfectly. And that was indeed the message. And pretty soon, the two groups are actually working amicably together, um, they're, um, they're exchanging food, they're trying out uh, drinks, they're um, swapping baubles and, and things that Cooks has, which are of great interest to the house for fresh supplies. So the, the ability to have a mutually beneficial exchange between two people who have no common language is, is mediated by this ability to, to, to cook up ad hoc communication. And I think that's so interesting because it, it makes you realise that communication and languages themselves will burst out anywhere um, you take them away, they won't be gone for long. Uh, and I mean, as you say, human language then is like charades. We see them, you know, elaborately throwing away their sticks and so on. Can you explain then how this developed? I mean, what is language? Where did it begin? So our perspective is that, I mean, I think I should contrast what we're going, I'm going to say with, with a more standard view, or the view that has become standard in the popular imagination. It's not really standard these days in the language sciences, although it's certainly a respected view. The standard view is that there's some kind of special genetic feature of us that makes us different from other animals, a language instinct, or sometimes a language organ, as it's called, um, which is essentially a biological system which is genetically encoded through evolution, and that somehow is special to us and it gives us the ability to create languages. And our perspective is very different from that. So our, our um, take on what's happening in the interaction between the house and, and Captain Cook and so many similar interactions is that what what people do spontaneously when they need to, to work together is they tend to form communicative, create communicative signals, ask charades or charades. And when they engage in the same kind of communicative interaction again, they'll use the same, the charade that worked before, they'll use that again. And they may need to repurpose it for some new, uh, new situation. So, and, and if you play charades with the same people over, over a few uh, minutes or hours or days, you find yourself building up a repertoire of conventions. And very interestingly, the conventions themselves, the signals that you send become simpler and simpler. So you start off doing some very elaborate dinosaur impression. And after a while, you're sort of just wiggling your, your, front, uh, your, your fingers as if they're the front legs of a dinosaur and doing a moderate roar 
a roaring sort of gesture, I'm perhaps even less than that, and that becomes, that's our dinosaur gesture. So the signals become simpler and simpler and simpler, and the meanings become broader and, and ever more um, widely used. So you start off trying to mime, I don't know, say King Kong, but then you start to use the same gesture for any, any primate in any situation in some you know, future chart. So the meanings become ever more flexible and the, the signals become simpler. And that is the pattern. And you're essentially building up a new communicative tradition, a way, a set of signs and symbols that you're going to be able to reuse in new communicative interactions. And the thought then is that if you do this after a while, you're going to see you know, complicated systems starting to emerge. And of course, it's not just that you're sending signals, you can start to concatenate them together. Uh, and you see this in a very interesting context in Nicaraguan sign language. So this is a, a system, a language at the same level of complexity, though small vocabulary as English uh, or any sign language. Um, but it grew up in a, in a period of a decade or two in Nicaraguan schools for deaf children where they were deliberately not taught sign language. So the aim was the children would try to learn to speak Spanish, even though they were profoundly deaf. And that did not work. But what the children did do is spontaneously struggle to communicate with each other. They, they cooked up signs, charades, um, to allow them to communicate. And those charades became standardised, developed a grammar, an ever bigger vocabulary, and created in a period of something like 10 or 15 years, obviously it was a somewhat gradual process, of highly sophisticated language. Now, this is not to say, necessarily, that human languages came from gestures, though they may have done. It's certainly a very popular theory about language origins is that the first languages were, were gestural. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, charades can be played with sounds too, so we can communicate with each other, and I'm sure we did initially. In the, and when you take language away, you're going to use both noises and gestures as much as you can. But what starts as ad hoc noises and gestures to get a particular message across will gradually turn itself into an ever richer and more, um, and more expressive system. And that's the languages we have now. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thanks for listening. <laughs>